My name is Phil Ward. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. I have the privilege of serving in the young adult ministry called Kairos. And I have the opportunity to preach for the next couple of weeks on the theology of work. And I think this is a, an important topic for everyone and for all of us. But one of the things that I've realized over the years is that as we approach the theology of work, um, a lot of times what blurs our understanding and ability to tr truly comprehend what the scriptures have to say about this concept of work, uh, what that is, is is a story. There's a story that each of us has and a story that we believe and a story from which we live that helps us to interpret and understand the circumstances and events that we experience in our lives. Let me give you an example. If any of you have ever ridden on BART, you know that that can be sometimes an adventure. Let's say, for instance, that you're sitting in BART and you're sitting in your comfortable chair and uh, somebody walks in, makes eye contact with you. You're like, oh, no. Then they walk towards you, still making eye contact, and they're going to talk to you. They stand before you and they exclaim, it's a boy. <laughs> what? How do you interpret that situation? How do, what do you do? But think about this. What if we have rolling in the back of our minds the story that we actually do have friends of ours who are pregnant and they are about to uh, have a baby any day now and they are expecting a boy. So that's rolling around as something you've been praying about and thinking about. And so when you get on BART, somebody walks in and says, it's a boy. And you're going, oh, yes. And so you look at the stranger who you don't know and then you ask them uh, to sit down and they sit down with you and you're like, tell me all about it. This is amazing. But then all of a sudden you start smelling alcohol. You start seeing this person kind of moving around kind of crazy and you realize, oh my goodness, this fool is drunk. And then you ask, when did it happen, huh? And you realize, oh no, I've just misinterpreted the situation based on the story I was telling myself. Well, let's say it another way. What if it is your friend? She had the baby, it's a boy. But you're on BART with your headphones on, and you're just trying to ignore everyone and everything that is happening on BART, and so you're just playing your games, and you're just listening, and they're standing there, it's a boy, and you're like, get away. Just imagine for a second your friend going, are you kidding me? Dude, we just had a baby. That's going to mess up your relationship. At least it's going to uh, affect it. You see, when we have life experiences and circumstances, we interpret those in light of whatever story we believe and whatever story we are living from. And when we think about the concept of work, each of us are going to approach the idea of work in a unique way, which is going to be based on the story we tell ourselves and the story from which we live. So if we believe a story that work, whatever it may be, stay at home mom and dad, you're a delivery nurse, you are a plumber, an electrician, you believe that work is a necessary evil, something that you have to do in hopes that one day in the future you don't have to anymore, then you will hate your work and you will be dreading to go to work every day. I can't imagine what that kind of life is like. It must be miserable. Or we can approach work as though it's necessary for human flourishing. And if that's the story we tell ourselves and if that is the story from which we live, then we will approach our work not as something we have to do, but something we get to do and do joyfully. So the story we tell ourselves, the story that we believe, the story from which we live is going to affect the way that we approach and understand and think about the concept of work. Now here's the reality. Every one of us works and every one of us has a story. But the question is, what is your story? What story do you believe? What story are you living from? And here's what I want to do today. 
I want to help us to have a bigger story and a better story than probably what m many stories out in the culture are offering. Because if having the story wrong affects our life circumstances, then if the story about all of life, the grand narrative of the universe, if we get that story wrong, then how will that affect the way in which we go about living our lives and understanding our purpose? It will be detrimental. So as we think about the theology of work, we have to approach the theology of work with a proper story that we're telling ourselves that we believe and that we are living from. And the best and most proper story you can tell yourself is the story that is in the Bible. It's called a biblical worldview. By having a biblical worldview, what you can do then is you can look at the world around you and you can experience all the things that life has to offer, whether good or bad, and you can interpret those things in light of the biblical worldview so that you are interpreting the experiences properly. So this morning what we need to do is I need to introduce you to the biblical worldview. I need to show you what the biblical story is in case you don't know it. And what we're going to see is this, that the Bible, the whole entire Bible, is really a singular story. It's one story. And it's a singular story of redemption. And the central concept of the story of redemption is that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. Let me say it again. The whole entire Bible is a singular story of redemption, and the central concept of the Bible is that God is restoring all things to himself through Jesus. And in light of that, Jesus is the hero of this book, not you. We good on that? So what is the biblical worldview? And how does it relate to work? That's what we're doing this morning. Hopefully you're good with that. Well, you don't really have a choice. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we are very cognizant of the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing. Our greatest thoughts our purest motives, our most intense affections are because of your grace. And so I'm praying, God, that even now that you would attune our affections, that you would align our thoughts to what it is you have to say to us today through your word. I pray that you use me in ways that you see fit, that you help me to not say anything unbiblical, but God, you would build your church through this, giving us eyes to see and hearts to believe, ears to hear that you are a God who is reconciling all things to himself through your son, Jesus. Help us, I pray. If there's anything we need to hear today, if there's anything our culture and our world needs to hear today, it is that you are offering redemption and reconciliation where there is only strife and pain and hurt. So God, teach us, I pray. Meet with us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what I want to do is I want to start with the reality that if the singular story of the Bible is about redemption, then we need to start with what is redemption and who's our redeemer. But Larry already preached that last message uh, last week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quiz you, make sure that you guys are all up to speed and you remember what he talked about. You ready for this? You're not. Okay, that's okay. I'm going to ask three questions from the book of Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to answer those questions and just make sure that we are orienting ourselves around this idea of redemption. So first, first question is this, what has been redeemed? If you read Colossians chapter 1, you're going to find that it talks about all things being redeemed, all things. But it's important to understand that all those things that are being redeemed are also the things that are the things that got created. And so if you read about what God has created, you can understand what God is redeeming. 
And it says that through Christ, in Christ, for Christ, he has created all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether things are tangible and physical or non-tangible and non-physical, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Christ, for Christ, through Christ, to whom belongs all the glory. So what is being redeemed? All things. Physical things, spiritual things, powerful things, powerless things, anything that God has created, God intends to redeem. And that is an important facet of what it means to be a Christian and have a biblical worldview. We do not believe that physical things are evil in and of themselves, but instead we believe that the physical things of this world are corrupted and distorted because of the fall but God has made a promise all of this physical corruption and distortion will one day be made right that's what we hope but also in verse 14 Paul talks about in in Colossians 1 that in redemption we as believers as as human beings we have redemption which means the forgiveness of sins Now, why is it crucial to understand that redemption and the forgiveness of sins are together? It's because sin is the obstacle and barrier that prevents us as human beings from having a right and appropriate relationship with God. And until sin is removed as an obstacle or a barrier to human relationship with God in in intimacy, we cannot have intimacy with God Almighty. So... God must redeem us, which means remove sin and get rid of any barrier or hindrance that stands as uh, an obstacle between God having us as his people and us having him as our God. And so redemption is related to relationship. Redemption is related to reconciliation. And reconciliation and relationship are owing to redemption. I know that's a lot of R words, but hang in there. So how has it been redeemed? Verses 19 to 22 tell us it's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus' cross, but also by the the body of Jesus. Now those two things are crucial. The blood of Jesus forgives us of sins. That's why we take communion and why we have a little cup of juice. But remember, sins are, generally speaking, non-tangible. They're spiritual. But also Jesus rose from the dead in a body. And he's coming back again in a body, so bodies matter. It's not a throwaway thing. They matter. What you do with your body is significant. And so when Jesus died on a cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins, but also rising victoriously in his body, promising to come back in his body, in which when he returns, we also get a new glorious resurrection body, total upgrade, that's going to be glorious. Bodies matter. God. And what is the result of redemption? Third question. That finally and permanently everything in all of creation will relate to one another as it's supposed to. Think about this for a second. When God created everything in the universe, think about the relationships that are involved in that. There's God relating to human beings who bear his image. There's human beings who relate to each other, Adam and Eve. There's human beings who relate to themselves, and there's human beings who relate to the natural world around them. And in every one of those relationships, sin and rebellion has broken those. Now we don't get to be in an intimate relationship with God. Now we are racist with one another and treat each other with injustice, and we are cruel, and we are exploiting one another, and we have suicidal thoughts because we don't even like ourselves. And what we do to the natural world is we exploit it to the point where we don't even uh, conjure the thought that we are supposed to be stewards of God's creation, but instead we just use it for our own devices. It's broken. This world is broken. But we are told in the scriptures that the gospel is good news because it's news that God has done what needed to be done and he is redeeming and reconciling all of those relationships through Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. And I love what Larry talked about last week in Romans chapter 8. 
Paul talks about this relationship of human beings and creation itself being redeemed. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Paul writes, the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you have that thought in your mind? That all of the natural created world, El Capitan and Half Dome are sitting in anticipation, eagerly awaiting for the moment when the sons of God are finally revealed? Why in the world is the natural creation eagerly anticipating the moment when you and I as the children of God are finally revealed? Why? Verse 20, good question, by the way. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. Did you hear it? We as image bearers of God are anticipating, are eagerly longing for the moment that we receive the redemption of our bodies and we are permanently and finally reconciled to God, to each other, to the natural world, to ourselves. And creation itself is anticipating that moment as well. They cannot wait. Rocks and streams and trees and grasses and butterflies and bushes and bears and all this stuff is anticipating when will the children of God receive their redemption and their redeemed bodies because creation seeks to be liberated. Is that how you think about the gospel? If you think about it, what I just said involves creation a fall, redemption, about the hope of a recreation or restoration or renewal. And in fact, what these four aspects are, are the essential elements to understanding the story of redemption in the Bible. The Bible is a singular story of redemption, and it involves four acts. You guys know how stories work. Act one, act two, act three, act four. There's four acts to this great story. Act one, creation. God is the creator and sustainer of everything. He holds everything together by the power of his word. He is the uncaused cause. He's the prime reality. He's the catalyst for all life. In him we move and live and have our being. God is everything. He has all authority. And if he has all, how much do we have? Do you get that? Act one. But then the fall comes in act two. In light of God's authority as creator and maker and sustainer of all things, there was a rebellion that happened and Satan and Adam and Eve said that they don't want to be under the authority of God and therefore they introduced sin and evil and destruction and death into the created world. And so what God created as glorious and beautiful and true and good has now been distorted and marred and is being corrupted because of rebellion. That's act two. But in the midst of such corruption and anarchy is act three, redemption. God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day in the future, an offspring of the woman will come and will conquer the serpent who is Satan, crush his head. And it's amazing because the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman symbolizes God's people being restored and renewed through a person, a singular person who would overcome and conquer and crush Satan and evil and death and all of that. And so in light of that, God makes this glorious and amazing promise that all is not lost. There's coming a day where I will redeem what I've made. And it will come through a singular person who will be the offspring of a woman. And Galatians 4.4 says Jesus is that person. That he is the one who is vanquishing sin that he is the one who's overcoming death and destruction. He is the one who has conquered sin. He is the one who rules and reigns as king over all. He is the one who finally and permanently put death to death by his glorious resurrection. Jesus is the one who all of creation and all of humanity has been longing for and anticipating and hoping for, and we as Christians have him for ourselves. Amazing. 
That's act three. Act four is the product of all this, which is recreation, or what we would call renewal, or final redemption. And that is no longer will we be anticipating that day in the future, but we will have it as a reality where the new creation simply becomes the reality in which we experience when God has renewed all things. So those are the four acts. It's a fabulous story. You know, story is important. I was reading this book on the, how to write uh, stories for screenwriters. Not that I plan on making a movie, but I don't know. It just seemed like a cool book to read. So I was reading it. It's got by this guy named Robert McKee. And uh, one of these quotes that he had has just stuck with me for a long time. It says this, talking about story. It says, the world now consumes films and novels and theater and television in such quantities and with such ravenous hunger that the story arts have become humanity's prime source of inspiration as it seeks to order chaos and gain insight into life. Our appetite for story is a reflection of the profound human need to grasp patterns of life. Story isn't a flight from reality, but it's a vehicle that carries us on in our search for reality. Our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of our existence is through the medium of story. Now think about that. You and I love stories. We love them. And stories are the way in which we make sense of the reality around us. Now, God is the greatest storyteller of all. And the greatest story that he has ever told is the four-act story and drama of redemption. Now, just in case that didn't make sense to you, let me say it another way. The gospel is like a fairy tale. And I know people came up to me after the service and they're like, oh my gosh, can't believe you said that. I don't know, the gospel is like a fairy tale, but it's a true one. Think about it. Fairy tales, once upon a time, there lived a beautiful princess. But one day she was taken captive and kidnapped by a mean, fierce dragon. But lo and behold, the prince came with his shining sword and his armor, slays the dragon, takes the girl, and they live happily ever after. Good story, right? God created humanity to be a people for his own possession. But that people was kidnapped and ransomed by a serpent named Satan. But lo and behold, a hero arrives on the scene and his name is Jesus and he slays the dragon and he frees the woman and they live together forever and ever. Remember that? We talk about how the church is the bride of Christ. We are the damsel in distress who the hero Jesus has come to rescue. It's the greatest story ever. Every fairy tale just rips off the gospel. And if you think about it, every story that involves a hero overcoming some tragedy is those kinds of stories we love most, is it not? And could that not be evidence that we long for Jesus as our heart's hero? That's awesome. All right. But most of us relate to the gospel and how it is exhibited to us in the four-act drama of redemption we relate to it primarily through two acts instead of four. What I mean is instead of understanding the creational aspect of it and the new creational aspect of it, we kind of sit right in the middle and just focus on the fall and redemption. And we, pri and, we, and we prioritize the fall of humanity and the redemption of humanity, and we negate the creational aspects of it, the physical part of it. And what ends up happening is we get it in our minds that really what life is all about is getting souls saved or getting people, you know, to become Christians. And, and as long as that happens, everything else is just clutter and noise and background. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do for a job. It doesn't matter what you do for any of those kinds of things. It just matters that you get your soul saved. And we see that all over the place. Think about this. I've asked somebody before, uh, I asked them a simple question. How are you? What's the answer? Always. Good. Even if they're terrible. It just always is good. That's just how it works in our culture. But I actually had somebody stop and looked at me with a puzzled look on their face, and, and they said, uh, well, what do you mean? Like spiritually or like just in regular life? <laughs> I didn't know there's a difference. 
Or think about it like this. We, we divide things into categories like sacred and secular. And we think in our minds that the sacred things of God are the things that God values most, while the secular things God just kind of, he cares about, but not as much. So I've had it where people have come to me and they go, Phil, I need your input. I really want to serve the Lord and I want to impact his kingdom and I want to make his gospel known to the nations. So I'm thinking about quitting my job as a plumber and I'm going to go to seminary and become a pastor. What are you talking about? Do you not have the categorical ability to understand that your job and vocation as a plumber can be a platform and vehicle by which God uses you to proclaim the gospel and impact his kingdom? You don't need to quit a secular job and enter a sacred job. And by the way, we oftentimes say people who are in sacred industries like pastors, missionaries, and all that, vocational ministry, God cares about them more. Where do you get that from? Where's that come from? as if God is unconcerned or doesn't give a rip about what you do as an electrician or a stay-at-home mom? And could it be that some of the angst inside of us that we feel is owing to this false story that we're telling ourselves that God cares more about the sacred than the secular? And we're gonna talk a lot about that next couple weeks, so I have to end that, we have to move on now. But it's food for thought, is it not? What does that even look like? I'm glad you asked. Come next week. <laughs> but when we think about the four-act drama of redemption, it confronts us with the truth that you are not merely your soul, nor are you merely your body. You are an embodied soul. Both matter to God. What you do with your body and what you do with your soul matters to God. What you do with your hands and what you do with your heart matters to God. And think about that impact for work. If God cares about creation and all of us in this room work within creation, with creation, then it might mean that what you do with God's creation, God is concerned about because he cares for his creation. But if you tell yourself God doesn't care about his creation, and yet your working life, which is about 60% of your waking life, is using creation and working with creation, then the only conclusion you can make is God doesn't give a rip about the 60% of your waking life. And that's false. Okay. So the Bible is a singular story of redemption with a central concept is that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And so what I want to do now is I want to transition and show you at the end of our story, which is the new creation or recreation, that John shows us in Revelation 21, these four acts. He, he shows us these things. And then what I want to show you is that within the new creation, we see that there's actually a very specific, very central, very important aspect to this whole entire story. This whole entire narrative, this whole entire drama of redemption involves this one aspect, which is awesome. I want to show you that, okay? Revelation 21. Let's go there. So the four-act drama, which is creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. You're going to see this shown for us by John. Verses 1 and 2, we see creation. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see what, what John does? He says, look, at the very end of the ages, there's going to be a new creation. It's the act one. There was a creation. But act four, there's going to be a new creation. And then we think about act two, which is the fall. Let's look at this in verse four. God says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which is our eyes as Christians, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so what John is saying in verse 4 is you have to understand that in the new creation, all of the effects of the fall, which is death and pain and mourning and sorrow and tears, 
all of that stuff comes untrue. The curse of the fall is being reversed and will finally and permanently be utterly reversed and none of that kind of stuff will be an experience we are to anticipate in the new creation. It's all gone and dealt with. Awesome. And the third act is redemption. And remember I said part of redemption or one of the uh, things that is important about redemption is that it reconciles relationships, creates intimacy. Look at this in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Did you see it? Because of the redemption, there's a reconciliation to the effect that God says, I'm going to dwell with you in such intimacy and with such a relationship that you will be my people. I will be your God. We will have one another for ourselves. That's awesome. And then, of course, the recreation is obvious because we're reading a section that takes place in the new creation, but it all culminates verse 5 and 6. God says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Now, make sure you understand that it doesn't say, I'm making all new things. It says, I'm making all things new. It's a restoration, it's a renewal, it's a redemption. And he says, come, I will show you, or excuse me, write this down, uh, for, those, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of, uh, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the, uh, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The difference between whether you enter the new creation or not is about whether or not you've been redeemed to your maker. Has that hostility been resolved? Are you in right relationship with him? Now, if you saw this, you would see that John is saying this whole redemption story culminates in the new creation. But if we have eyes to see, we, we saw something repeated there, didn't we? There, there, was, there was an idea that was repeated twice. And whenever you're in the Bible or reading and something is repeated over and over, you kind of have to stop and go, whoa, why are they trying to get my attention? Let's read this, verse 3. I don't know if you saw it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's look at verse 7. The one who conquers, and by the way, Revelation 12 tells us that those who conquer are those who conquer by the blood of the lamb, important fact, that they will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Did you see it repeated? There's an intimacy aspect. There's an intimacy component to this whole relational aspect between God and his people. God says, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And what I'm going to tell you is this, the whole Bible is a singular story of redemption, the central concept of which is that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. But what it means that he's reconciling all things to himself through Christ, remember redemption and relationship are intimately connected. The central theme throughout the scriptures is that God wants to be with his image bearers. The whole reason why he made creation in the first place is in order to create human beings who would experience him. And in experiencing him would experience the fullness of joy. But that all went, went bad. But God made a promise, no, 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 I'm going to restore what I created. I'm going to do and accomplish what I intended to do and I'm going to make sure that there's no barriers between you and you. I, I want to relate to you. I want you and me to be in relationship. I want to be intimate with you and you with me. And so I'm going to overcome all these obstacles. I'm going to get sin out of the way and you and I are going to be together. And one day, finally and permanently, when Jesus, my son, returns to earth, he will consummate his kingdom and we will live with God forever and ever. 
in a place that is redeemed and restored. So that is the theme throughout the scriptures, and I want to show you that. So we're going to start in the Old Testament. We've got a lot of verses to look at. Buckle up. Exodus 6. There's, there's some before this, but I'll start in Exodus. It's close enough to the beginning. Moses is told by God to say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Do you hear God's heart in this? I'm going to redeem you. I want you. Verse 7, check this out. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The same thing we saw in Revelation 21. God redeems in order to restore relationship, not just casual relationship, but deep, intimate relationship with his image bearers. Exodus 19, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians in verse 4, how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Intimacy. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, not just your soul, but all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and the holy nations. By the way, Peter is going to directly quote that reference in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I think Larry will preach on it in a few months. But there's other references, 2 Samuel 7 and Jeremiah and Zechariah. There's all kinds of Old Testament references that have this idea that God wants to dwell in intimacy with his people where he is their God and they are his people. And that is accomplished through redemption. It's all over. But I want to highlight Ezekiel 37 because I think this is most clear to us. In talking about the people of God who will be the people of God according to the new covenant, Ezekiel says this, or he writes this. They, the people of God, shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But God says, I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Did you hear that? I will heal. I will cleanse. I will restore. I will save. Redemption. Why? Next verse. Our next clause. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I want intimacy with you. Verse 24. My servant David shall be a king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now think about this. Ezekiel was writing hundreds of years after David was already dead. How in the world is David going to be king over the new covenant people? Either he's going to resurrect from the dead, or Ezekiel has in his mind that there's going to be a better and greater David who's coming in the future. A Davidic king who will be a ruler over creation and will also be leading his people like a shepherd. Does that sound remotely close to anybody you know? Like Jesus? Who ascends the Davidic throne? Who rules and reigns as king over the universe? And who rules us and leads us as John 10 says, the good shepherd? And so Ezekiel is pointing to the fact that Jesus is coming. Now, why this is significant is because up until this point when Ezekiel was writing, the history of God's people, Israel, has been he wanted to dwell with them in Adam and Eve, and that fell apart, but then God made a promise, and then he raised up Moses, and then Moses came, and God's like, I'm going to dwell with you, and he did so in a tabernacle. And then the tabernacle lasted for a little while, but then all of a sudden we had the monarchy, and so David wants to build a throne, or excuse me, wants to build a temple, and Solomon does. And then God says, I'm dwelling with my people in a temple. But then the temple gets destroyed because of disobedience. Ezekiel begins to write and promises that there will be a rebuilt temple, but it, will, it won't be as glorious. And then that temple is rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, and the people are like wailing and mourning because they're like, that's it? I mean, I guess. That's cool. Why? Because God wants them to understand, I started in a garden, it went to a tabernacle, it went to a temple, I destroyed that. Now I want to get your mind off of the physical temple and up to, upwards towards a temple that would be more glorious and more beautiful and more astounding and more awesome than you even thought or imagined. That's the kind of temple I want. So then we ask ourselves, well, what temple is he talking about? I'm glad you asked. 
You guys are really good question askers. Let's go to the New Testament. With that in mind, what does the New Testament have to say about God dwelling with his people and redeeming his people and wanting intimacy with his people? What does it have to say? Colossians 1.19. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the fullness of God was in the tabernacle. The fullness of God was in the temple. And now all of a sudden the fullness of God is in Jesus. Uh-oh. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. <gasps> Could you possibly mean that God is going to dwell with his people as a person? Yes. And the person of Jesus is so, more, so much more majestic and awesome and beautiful than the Old Testament temple that Jesus in John chapter 2 is walking in Jerusalem and looks at the temple and goes, you guys see that? Destroy that and I'll build it in three days. People are going, this, this guy. It took us decades to build this. You're going to rebuild it in three days? Yeah. How can Jesus say something like that? It's because John tells us in John chapter 2 that Jesus was referring to his body. Tabernacle gets replaced by temple, which gets replaced by Jesus. More glorious, more awesome, more majestic, more holy, more beautiful than any of those other things. That is where God dwells. But is that only where God dwells? Because now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. What now? Hopefully you are astounded by this. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the dwelling place of God is in us. He says, in him, Jesus, you also, the church, from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group, every race and ethnicity, those who were once hostile towards one another are now being brought together, and we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you understand what is happening right here? We, the church, are being pulled from all different corners and walks of life in order to come together and be built by the Spirit so that we will be an edifice in which the presence of God dwells. We are here and God is with us. Now, this is what blows my mind is how people in the church can mistreat one another when in reality we understand that we're the temple of God. What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. And in fact, 2 Corinthians says as much. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, what, art, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? What are we doing messing around with God's temple? We are the temple of the living God. God said so. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see it again? Paul's saying, look, the whole Old Testament was about God relating to his people in, in deep, intimate relationship. And now that day has come. And people go, how? In Jesus. In Jesus, we are being restored. Not only to God, yes, that's glorious and great, but we have to think that the gospel has implications beyond that as well. We, you and I, who according to this world ought not to get along because of our race or because of our socioeconomics or because of our education, we are not supposed to get along, but yet in the church, here we are. Why? Because Jesus' blood is conquering all those div divisions that cause us to be at animosity with one another. It's all being destroyed. Peace is coming. Does that make sense? So I don't even know where I'm at. All right. That wasn't in my notes. Um, all right. So there's lots of cool stuff in the Bible. <laughs> um, hey. Well, let's just, uh, all right, let's talk about Jesus some more. There's, that's a safe thing to do. Um, and so I believe this. As I teach people the Bible, I tell them, look, the Bible, I, I, it's cute and kind of makes you feel good. When you think about the Bible, it's like God's love letter to you. And it's like basic instructions before leaving earth. But there's a problem with that. The problem is, what does the Bible have to say about how much technology you should take in and how much time you should spend, you know, on a screen? I've read the Bible a lot. It doesn't say anything about that. Well, if it's basic instructions, is that beyond basic? 
And so I think we're approaching the Bible in a way that probably isn't healthy for us. We need to approach the Bible as though it is the singular story of God's redemption in which God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. The Bible is about Jesus. And when I read it, I need to find out what can I know about Jesus. Well, I'm glad you asked. Once again, very attentive. Theologians call this idea the Emmanuel Principle. It's the idea that God longs and hungers and thirsts to be with us, his people. And it's shown throughout scriptures in the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'll be with you. So when God wanted to redeem the world, he decided as the grand storyteller and author of everything, he decided to write himself into the story and become a part of his creation. And what he does is he sends his son and names him what? Emmanuel which means what? God with us. So God's like, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to prove it. Here's my son. His name is I'm going to be with you. <laughs> so when we think about Jesus and we think about the gospel and we think about redemption, think about this, John 14, 3. Here's what Jesus has to say about all of this and how it centralizes on himself. He says this, if I go and prepare a place for you in the new creation, I will come again and I will take you to be with myself. Do you hear that? I'm not just giving you heaven, I'm giving you me. Uh, John 17, when Jesus prays for us, the, the future followers of Jesus who would come from the apostles' teaching, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Why did Jesus die on a cross? Not just to forgive you of sins, though that is a major thing. But what he did was died for us so that he might bring us to God. Relationship. Titus 2, 11 to 14, one of my favorite verses. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The whole point of redemption is that you get Jesus and you have as much of God as you want. John Piper wrote a book called uh, God is the Gospel and he asked this question and when I asked myself this question I wanted just to die and cry and I was just like so convicted. He said this, he said if God promised you all of the benefits and blessings of the new creation, no death, no pain, no sorrow infinite joy, happiness, peace. But he also told you that Jesus wouldn't be there though. Would you still go? And then he followed that up by saying, if you would gladly go to heaven, even though Jesus wasn't there, it probably demonstrates to you that you don't love Jesus, you love what Jesus can do for you. I'm telling you, I was like, oh, my goodness. And so maybe our prayers should be altered instead of Jesus, can you give me? God, can you give me? Can you grant me? Instead, it may be something like this. God, would you make me? Would you make me love you? Would you make me want you? It's not so much that we don't want God. It's that a lot of times we don't even want to want God. So God has to overcome our non-wanting to want him. But if we approach life and our work with a biblical worldview, here's something that we might need to think about. If the Bible is a singular story of the redemption in which the central aspect is God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ, then the universe and the physical part of this universe matters to God, which means your work matters to God. And if God wants to be with you so desperately and he is overcoming sin, even dying on a cross for you to be with you, then perhaps what you're doing with creation in your vocation is a place or an avenue or a vehicle through which you can meet God 
I'm not talking about where you just share your faith with a coworker. I'm talking about while, while you are sitting there sweating pipe, you are meeting with God. When you are wiping down benches, vacuuming, drawing, those might be opportunities in which you're meeting with God because that's what he wants. How would that change your, your day? <laughs> I'll close with this because I'm way over. Oh, geez, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I had a, uh, one of the young adults in our ministry came to me, and he says, I hate my job. And I was like, what do you do? And he said, I work at In-N-Out. And I go, oh, yeah, there's, some, there's only so much, like, you know, smashing those potatoes that, you know. And I was like, what if you change your perspective and you started to understand that you're not just at a job, but if you start to look at your customers the way God probably sees them, which is everyone who comes to in and out is hungry. What if you went to work tomorrow with the understanding that you have a four-hour shift in which you are going to feed the hungry? Could it be that God is using you to love and serve your neighbor through you making hamburgers? Could it be? Wouldn't that change your work if you saw everything you did as an opportunity for God to use to serve and love your neighbors? You betcha. I guess we'll pray now. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its depth. Thank you for its complexity. But also thank you for its simplicity. God, thank you that you have revealed to us your grand plan of redemption and you, and you have done so through story. It's a four-act drama in which you are revealing yourself to be a passionate, loving, caring God who wants to be with us. And you will not stop at even death to ensure that you will purchase for us yourself. And God, you will reunite us and reconcile us, not only to you, but to one another and to ourselves and to creation itself. So God, thank you for this good news. It's news because you've done all that needed to be done and it's good because one day you will renew and recreate all that you made. It will be good again. And God, thank you for the hope that wells up in us as we ponder these things. For your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.